Unearthed Memphis, your Memphis history podcast with hosts Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. Hey everybody, welcome back to Unearthed Memphis. I'm Alan. And I'm Tara. And uh, it's been a long time. No speak, no chat, no record. No nothing. No nothing. We've almost kind of forgot how to do this. (laughs) (laughs) I know you all probably felt like we fell off the face of the earth, and for a minute there, I think we might have thought that too. I think so. Uh, a lot has gone on since, no, uh, yeah. no, not November, December. December. Um, like nine months, almost ten months by the time this comes out. Right. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, uh, I guess we can start where the last episode ended. I think we told you we were going on an adventure, and we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, we took a long weekend uh, to Las Vegas to celebrate and reunite with Alan's Blast cast. It was their 21st anniversary, because, you know, we, we kind of missed the 20-year mark because of COVID. Yep. Um, but it also happened to be my 40th birthday, so Ooh. double win! Um, so remind the folks at home what Blast is. Uh, Blast was the stage production that I was a performer in in London, on Broadway, and various locations around the country. Awesome. And I believe they're still doing a version of that in Japan, right? Yeah, they're doing a show. Uh, it's been running on and off since its inception, and it has a few spinoffs that toured in Asia, in the U.S., London. But now they mainly perform in Asia when they're operating. And the while the original show that I played in was mainly classical and jazz literature, the current show's repertoire is the music of Disney. Which I would love to see that. Given yeah, my, it would be good. My love of Disney. Um, and we went now, and I'm like the biggest fan. <laughs> and to prove so, my work bestie Lisa and I, we even got matching Disney tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> and they're the cutest things they ever. They are. They're really adorable. Um, shout out to Hannah in Kentucky who did them for us. Um, she's amazing. Anyway, so uh, we went to Vegas and it was amazing and I got to meet loads of people that Alan has known for ages but I've only heard stories about and uh, we both got to meet a few new friends from later cast and it was all fantastic. Yeah, we managed not to gamble at all because I don't do that. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not giving. Folks <laughs> I'm too free scared money. with my money. <laughs> uh, but we did stay at Caesar's Palace in this really, really fancy room because mm-hmm. it was cheap. It was the cheapest room we could find at the time, uh, because Vegas wants people to come visit. Yeah, and we so also like give us a few dollars. Right, <laughs> we'll right, right. Give you a nice room. We also ate loads of good food, drank some yummy drinks, mm-hmm. shopped, and we saw a Cirque du Soleil show. Yeah, which was really awesome. So, oh. Yeah. Uh, I'd never seen one before, so it was, it was pretty magical. And we had um, birthday dinner at the Gordon Ramsay pub, mm. and they had the greatest sticky toffee pudding I have ever eaten. <laughs> uh, and I was super full, and I had to open my dessert pocket for it. Christy would know what that is, um, but it was well worth it. And actually, we were watching uh, the Great British Bake Off yesterday, and this dude made some sticky toffee pudding something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yo, we, we got to get on that recipe. Yeah, no kidding. I need some sticky pu- sticky toffee pudding. <laughs> <laughs> and then we came home on Terry's 40th birthday. Woohoo! Airport birthday! <laughs> <laughs> and it was at that point that everything went downhill. <laughs> I started feeling bad on the plane ride home, but just like a uh, sinus crud, you know, because everybody, everybody inevitably feels gross on plane rides. They do. Uh, we had already had COVID tests scheduled when we got home because we knew we were taking a risk going, but we just hoped for the best. But alas, I got the vid. No. 
But Tara did not. I did not. Yeah. Or at least I never tested positive. And we took multiple tests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, luckily, I didn't have a bad go of it. We were both vaccinated and boosted, as, as everyone should be. Yes. Um, so I basically felt like I had a sinus infection for a few days, and then all was well. And then I was just as I was getting better, Tara had her <laughs> own medical mystery happen. Yeah, so I had this weird drug reaction and ended up having bizarre ever-changing symptoms for about six weeks. Uh, it was pretty awful, and I'm not sure if it was a med reaction or I really had COVID, and those were bizarre symptoms related to that. All I know is I had a rough go of things, but luckily I'm I'm back to normal, or at least mm. Terra normal, because when is my brain ever normal? Mm-hmm. Just slightly to the side of normal. That's very accurate, um, but I have, I have good medicine now, <laughs> so we're all good. <laughs> so in the midst of Tara thinking she was going to die at the drop of, the ha- a, drop of a hat, oh, we yeah. found a super amazing condo downtown and decided to move, <laughs> because that seemed like a great idea. Yes. And it was. It was. Yeah. Uh, we've been here since March, and we absolutely love it. We're in we love, love with downtown living. Um, and my niece Gracie says, it's like we live in iCarly <laughs> for folks who know what iCarly is. I know what the show is, but I don't get the reference, but nah. that's okay. That's I okay. don't have to. They live in really awesome condos. <laughs> <laughs> I for one have no clue about that show at all. All right. And then we had to help, uh, Alan's parents finish up with Nani's estate. That was my grandmother. Yes. She passed away in 2021. Um, and it was a huge undertaking because she had lived there since the 1950s. Yeah, they were the first people and the only people to ever live in the house. Yeah, it was it was really cool. I decided to look it up on the assessor's website, and I was like, look, there they are, Nani and Daddy Joe. Yep. Uh, so we found loads of cool stuff there and, um, and some questionable things. Um, <laughs> there was this thing called a torpedo lamp. Mm. Everybody, please Google this and laugh as much as I did when we brought it down from the attic. Yeah, don't Google it with your kids. Don't do, yeah, no, no, no. (laughs) Um, But we're able to come out of that uh, numerous months adventure uh, with the family's dining table. So um, that was really cool. It's where everything uh, happened in that house. Everything happened around the table. So. Um, I'm super nostalgic, and so that table has seen a lot of the McNeely history, so yeah. I was super pumped to have it. When we finally finally finished up with that, and work life hit us full force again, mm-hmm. and we both started taking on more responsibilities, but we've managed to figure out how, how to balance that with real life again. Yeah. And we joined Memphis Heritage and have started going to their events, making connections, and getting to know other people who enjoy Memphis history as much as we do. And we're enjoying Saturday mornings at the Farmer's Market and Main Street Trolley Nights. Yes, which and is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and we're hitting up our favorite breweries and even tried our hand at axe throwing. Which Alan is eerily good at. Like, I have a lot of leverage. I'm tall. Maybe that's what it is. Um, and possibly, best of all, for reasons such as we're giant nerds and we get to hang out with our BFFs way more often, we have joined a D&D party. Mm-hmm. Yes, kids. At least one full <laughs> day every weekend we get to nerd out and it is yeah. the greatest. Yeah. We play with our BFF couple, Dining and Carrie, the amazing photographers behind Smith Artists and Photography. Check them out. Yes, we're going to uh, plug them because they are fantastic. They are. And one of their friends who just turned 21, their daughter and her fiance. And sometimes the babies. We were the cutest ever. They really are. How is my little boyfriend? <laughs> I just love him so much. <laughs> oh, and Tara just finished recovering from COVID also. Yep. Uh, just 
took uh, two and a half years, but finally got her. It did. Luckily, she was just slightly more snotty mess than she normally is. It's true. Uh, And I'm so thankful it wasn't any worse. It was just super inconvenient. So way to go, vaccines. I I didn't feel terrible. I just got like a five-day vacation in front of the TV. And if any of you are friends of ours that are close enough to stay at our house ever, if we tell you our couch is comfortable, it's not yeah, not at all. <laughs> Poor Alan had to sleep on the couch for five nights. We're lying if we tell you that. <laughs> it's cozy to sit on for a while. It's real pretty too. <laughs> real pretty. <laughs> uh, let's see. And most recently, we went to the Pink Palace Crafts Fair, or um, I don't think they call it the Mosh Fair. Yeah, I think it's still Pink Palace. Yeah, I think it is. Okay. Um, And I bought some awesome earrings from Lauren Brooke with no E. Lauren Brooke Jewelry. Yeah. um, And Ava Goldworks. And then we finally purchased the Elmwood print from Martha Kelly. um, Mm. Martha Martha Kelly Art. Uh, Her work is amazingly beautiful. We saw it at one of the Elmwood events. And for whatever reason, we didn't get it. So when we went to the the crafts fair, we're like, It was hanging there. It was it was waiting it there was for time. us. Yes. And the uh, even nerdier thing about that, I have to throw this plug in there. So they're signed and numbered, right? And we got number 19, which is super significant for people who enjoy Stephen King like we do. Um, yeah. So it was Kismet, I it believe. Was. Or Ka. Or it Ka. Was Ka. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where we've been and what we've done. And it doesn't seem like much when you write it out, but I assure you it was a lot. It really was. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all, all this being out and about in our city again has inspired us to finish up this episode and get season three underway, which yes. is coming very, very soon. Very soon. All right. And now it's time to get back to the much anticipated longest cliffhanger ever. Bum, bum, bum. I don't think we'll ever do another two-parter. Um, but if we do, they will both be written at the same time. <laughs> well, we're doing sort of a... A 10-parter in the next season. So. Yeah, I know. Let's not talk about that yet. <laughs> um, so here you have it. The Sultana, part two. Okay, so here's where we left off. Uh, It's April 1865. The Sultana has been docked at Vicksburg, Mississippi, preparing to load far more passengers than the steamer is equipped to hold. The passengers are almost entirely Union soldiers who are being paroled from the Cahaba or Andersonville Confederate prison camps, in which they have experienced hellish living conditions, not to mention already having experienced the unimaginable horrors of battle. The Sultana's chief engineer, Nathan Wintringer, has learned from a local boiler maker, R.G. Taylor, that substantial repair is needed to happen to one of the steamer's boilers, and Taylor refuses to sign off on its departure from Vicksburg until the necessary repairs have been made. Wintringer finally convinces Taylor to only patch the boiler with the promise that the full repair will be done when the steamer is finally docked uh, in St. Louis. The steamer is hastily being prepped for its journey north, skipping over pretty much anything that might make the journey comfortable for its passengers, and orders are being delivered to load all of the 1,400 passengers presumed to be awaiting transport, which will severely overload the steamer. This order comes in part from an attempt at personal monetary gain, and part from misinformation passed along about the actual number of potential passengers present at that time in Vicksburg. The federal government was offering to pay $5 per enlisted man and $10 per officer for any vessel willing to transport the parolees up the Mississippi on their way back home. Colonel Reuben Hatch, chief quartermaster of the Union Army in Vicksburg, promised J. Cass Mason, captain of the Sultana, 
as many paroled prisoners as he could supply, presumably in exchange for a cut of the profits. Hatch already had a sordid history in regards to accepting kickbacks and bribes during his time in service and would eventually be relieved of his duties for that exact thing. Captains George Williams and Frederick Speed seemed to be determined to expedite the Sultana's passenger loading by whatever means necessary, but their haste had a cost. Bedrolls, wrapped together with personal care items, were meant to be distributed to each paroled prisoner loaded on the t- loaded onto the Sultana. This process was started, but quickly seen as something that might delay the steamer's loading and departure, risking their personal monetary gain. Since the bedrolls were not prepared ahead of time, they were not able to use the distribution of those items as a gauge of how many people they had been loaded into the steamer. Uh, This is not the sole reason for the overloading the Sultana. No, that was a volatile mixture of greed, incompetence, and negligence. But this certainly contributed. Yeah. So finally, the Sultana is fully loaded, or rather overloaded, and powered by compromised boilers, prepared to depart from Vicksburg. This steamer, with its maximum passenger capacity of fewer than 400, was now carrying around 2,500 passengers. Mm-mm most of them paroled prisoners of war. More than a few times, opportunities arose for them to pass off some of their passengers to other steamers that left the Vicksburg docks at less than capacity, opportunities which were tragically passed up for personal gain. The prisoners aboard the Sultana were in great spirits upon departing Vicksburg, thinking they were out of harm's way, many of them singing songs, dancing, laughing, and sharing with each other the many things that they were going to do upon arrival at their homes. Their spirits were not dampened even by the limited rations of hard bread and salted meat they were given to eat aboard the vessel. When Captain Mason ordered a stop at Helena, Arkansas to bring on more supplies, a photographer who was stunned by the massive number of people aboard the Sultana took a very famous photograph of the steamer. Uh, When the passengers noticed the picture being taken, many of them rushed to the side of the vessel in an attempt to participate in the photo. This shift in the weight nearly toppled the Sultana. This photograph is not only the only known picture of the Sultana from its last trip, but the last known photograph of the passengers on board. The Sultana docked for the first time at 6.30 p.m. on April 26, 1865 in Memphis. And this happened to be the same day that John Wilkes Booth was killed by the Union troops in Virginia. Some of the soldiers decided to head to a local saloon while the ship was being unloaded in Memphis, while some of them stayed aboard. The Sultana even picked up a few passengers during its short stop in Memphis. One of them, the fantastically named yet unlucky, you have to read this. Epinitus W. McIntosh. Yes, that is a name. Um, He was actually meant to make the rest of his journey on the Henry Ames, another passenger vessel docked at Memphis. But he returned too late after a quick trip into town, and the steamer had already departed. He then boarded the Sultana, having no idea that only a short while later he would be battling the currents of the Mississippi River. That is some rotten luck, dude. No kidding. The Sultana departed from Memphis around 11 o'clock on the evening of the 26th, heading just across the river to a coaling station in Hope, Arkansas, where where she was loaded with 1,000 bushels of coal. A soldier named George Downing had gone to Memphis to visit friends, but was too late returning, and he watched as the Sultana pulled up to the coaling station across the river. He had been sent a few dollars by family members, which he obtained in Vicksburg. 
and he used that money to hire a skiff to take him across the river where he boarded the doomed steamer, placing himself unknowing, unknowingly right back in harm's way. Jeez, these poor unlucky fellas. No they were kidding. so close to having drastically different futures. Or futures at all. Or futures at all. The Sultana left the coaling station at 1 a.m. on the 27th, headed north towards Cairo, Illinois. I think that's Cairo, actually. I think it is Cairo. Yeah. The Mississippi River was flooded pretty badly in April of 1865, having no levee system to manage its flow, and it parts just north of Memphis, measured up to four miles across. The Sultana's pilot, George Caton, navigated through the dark waters as the passengers slept, unaware of the danger that lay ahead. Uh, so we should talk a little bit about the layout and the structure of the Sultana, just to further prove how ill-suited the steamer was for the load it was carrying. Caton piloted the vessel from the pilot house, which was the top level of the steamer's superstructure. Below him were the main deck, the boiler deck, and then the hurricane deck. The hurricane deck was uh, also housed the Texas deck, holding the crew's quarters on which the pilot house sat. Because of the size of the steamer's superstructure, with its many levels, the walls and floors of each level had to be built with flimsier, lightweight wood in order to reduce the weight. The massive number of passengers aboard the Sultana on this trip were making the floors of each level sag tremendously. If anything were to happen to the main supports of the superstructure, each level would likely collapse. The upper decks were also coated with paint containing turpentine, benzene, and other combustibles. One, uh, one author referred to the upper levels of the Sultana as an orderly pile of kindling wood. <laughs> so that's awesome. Yeah. So the Sultana, prepped for fiery terror as much as a boat can be, proceeded up the river at its nine miles an hour blazing cruising, cruising speed. Yes, that's yeah. fast. Uh, many of the passengers were resting soundly, some for the first time in ages, bringing the Sultana's deck to a haunting lull. At a little before two in the morning on April 27th, as the steamer began to round the bend in the river just seven miles north of Memphis, three of the Sultana's four boilers erupted, making a sound, as described by a witness, like a hundred earthquakes. The force of the explosion propelled many passengers into the air, landing them in the cold, turbulent waters of the Mississippi River with only debris to cling to. Many others were trapped under the collapsing decks, and some who were closer to the boilers were killed instantly. Those that were lucky enough to survive the initial explosion and found themselves in the frigid, muddy water found that their luck was quickly fading as they struggled to paddle through the turbulence. Some held on for dear life to the fragments of the steamer's deck, severed wooden railings, or even horses, which had been jettisoned from the steamer and were also struggling to stay afloat. I didn't realize there was horses on there, too. Oh, yeah. yeah the, uh, more animals than that, actually. <laughs> oh, my goodness. To add insult, or rather more injury, to injury, uh, shortly after the initial explosion, a, del a deluge of boiling water from the steamer's boilers rained down on the survivors, burning, blinding, and even killing some of them. One survivor of the explosion described the event by saying, The agonizing shrieks and groans of the injured and dying were heart-rendering, and the stench of burning flesh was intolerable and beyond any power of description. And take it from someone who deals with that smell on a daily basis, it is terrible. Mm. Mm. Let's keep in mind two factors that were at play during this horrible event that made it massively worse. The first is this. Aside from the times when the river is super high due to heavy rain, we Memphians are used to seeing the Mississippi River at a width of about a half mile or a little more. 
Well, parts of the river used to be much wider, as we said before, especially with our modern interstate system and bridges that connect us to the other side of the river. Um, the second factor is that a large number of the passengers could not swim. It is reported that the Sultana was midstream when the explosion happened, which means that the ejected passengers could very well have been more than a mile from either shore. And the passengers that were thrown from the steamer or had the chance to jump and who were lucky enough not to be hit by the boiling water, flaming debris, or humans or dead animals or living animals uh, had a slim chance of finding something to cling to, which was buoyant enough to allow them to paddle to safety. Those who couldn't reach any floating debris were left to rely on their own strength, endurance, survival instincts, and determination to make the long swim to shore through the turbulent current of the Mississippi. And many did not make it. And while we don't have time to go into the stories of the individual survivors, at least not right now, there are many, and they all paint a vi very vivid picture of the horrific scene that unfolded. You should check out the main source for this episode, The Sultana Tragedy, America's Greatest Maritime Disaster by Jerry O. Potter, for more stories of the lucky few that survived this terrible event. And for a first-hand account from a survivor written by the survivor, check out The Loss of the Sultana by Chester D. Berry. William Allwood, shipmate of the steamer Bostonia II, noticed a glow as he rounded the river bend at Memphis, first thinking it was a building fire from the city. When he realized he was looking instead at a vessel that was on fire, his captain gave orders to lower the steamer's yawl, and it headed towards the Sultana's wreckage to assist with rescue. Other vessels, the Silver Spray, the Marble City, the Essex, the Tyler, the Grosbeak, and the Rose Hamilton, followed suit over the next early morning hours, and the rescue attempt was fully underway. The Sultana finally came to rest against Chicken Island. That's a great name. Fantastic name. Just upriver from Mound City, Arkansas. As the sun rose, the rescue attempts continued, and more and more survivors began washing up on the shores. Some of the survivors, stranded in trees or clutching the driftwood that took them to safety, celebrated by singing together and laughing. Some men, a group of 25 or so, had actually survived on the bow of the Sultana, but they sustained very serious burns and other injuries. However, as this area finally caught fire, this, these men were forced to move to an approaching raft a few at a time and were transported to safety. Wounded survivors were taken in and treated at local hospitals such as the Gayoso and Overton Hospitals, and other were transported to the Soldiers' Home, a military hospital, which is now known as the Hunt Phelan Home. Hunt Phelan is on the east end of Beale Street, just past Danny Thomas. And in the recent past, the home has been used for a wedding venue, but I believe it's currently shut down. Um, but you can still drive past it, though. It's very pretty. Yeah. yeah. Memphians who were affected by the news of the uh, explosion of the Sultana responded in a very compassionate and charitable way. Some began collecting food, clothing, and living essentials for the survivors, along with money for lodging and supplies. Others reacted in kind by volunteering to assist with funeral preparations, preparing bodies of the dead, or simply offering up their homes for survivors. Many of the survivors who were heading towards Camp Chase for parole after the war were soon placed in the last location they would want to be after surviving a steamer catastrophe. Another steamer. Understandably, some were panicked about being back on a water vessel on the same stretch of river. And I can't imagine what kind of post-traumatic stress this would cause, but I think I might have to huddle somewhere on the steamer far away from boilers and just stay there for the duration right? of the trip. No kidding. 
As the body recovery efforts began, they quickly realized that it was going to be a very, very difficult to identify many of the dead, as they really had no possessions on them, and what paperwork the paroled soldiers may have had with them at the beginning of the trip would certainly have been destroyed during the explosion or afterwards by the elements. Due to the condition of some of the bodies after sitting in freezing river, river water or being burned in the blast, many identifying features were simply no longer visible. Some of the dead were placed in two long trenches near the site of the Sultana's wreckage at the head of Chicken Island. Most of the unidentified or unclaimed bodies were buried in Elmwood Cemetery. When the National Military Cemetery was built in 1867, most of the military dead were reburied there from Elmwood. Most of those graves sadly only read, Unknown U.S. Soldier. A monument was erected in 1989 in Elmwood Cemetery near the, marked, near the unmarked graves of a few of the Sultana's victims. The total number of deaths that occurred from the Sultana disaster is a bit unclear. It will always be an approximation due to the varying data on how many people were loaded onto the Sultana in the first place, along with the shoddy record-keeping methods available at the end of the Civil War. The original report, in 1865, estimated the death toll at 1,238, based on a total passenger count of 2,021. However, the Sultana could have had as many as 2,500 people loaded on it, which it probably did. Uh, the official death toll reported by the Customs Department at Memphis is 1,547. However, that number is more likely to be upwards of 1,800 dead. Regardless of how many it was, every one of them was preventable, unnecessary, and the result of greed of personal gain. When the investigations began into the cause of the explosion, many theories came to light, and people began scrambling to explain away their culpability. The pilot of the Sultana, George Caton, testified before the investigative board that, in his opinion, the fires on the steamer could have been extinguished if the fire buckets had not been blown for the ship by the explosion, which was ridiculous. <laughs> he also said that the steamer was fully stocked with life preservers. Unfortunately, the Sultana being fully stocked with a whopping seven, uh, 76 life preservers. So even if the ship had the appropriate number of passengers on board, 377 or so, 76 life preservers are still nowhere near enough. Right. Uh, the subject of bribery came up in the investigation as well, with Hatch's chief clerk testifying that two competing steamboat lines were offering 50 cents a head to secure the Army's contract to transport the prisoners from Cahaba and Andersonville. It was also said that after Hatch learned about the possibility of somewhere between 2,000 to 2,500 passengers waiting to be loaded onto the Sultana, that he made no attempts to verify whether or not his vessel could safely manage that load. Hatch testified that he was not in charge of the prisoner transfer and that would, uh, he would have put no more than 1,500 people on the Sultana if it had been in his power. This conflicts directly with Captain Kern's testimony, saying that he had instructed Hatch to divide the prisoners onto other steamers. Speed also maintained that Hatch had made the decision to load the excess prisoners onto the Sultana. Basically, it was all a big blame game. At the end of the government inquiries, there were several theories offered as to the cause of the explosion. William Roberry, the Sultana's first mate, insisted that some sort of explosive device, or infernal machine as he called it, must have been stashed in the steamer's coal supply by a saboteur. Mm, yes, that's exactly what it was. Also, the words infernal machine are great together. Right. 
Uh, this was based on the presence of a scorched artillery shell that was found in the wreckage at the Sultana's final resting place. The most likely cause, though, is the overloaded steamer paired with the damaged boiler. Even with all of the evidence of bribery and negligence, not much punishment was handed down uh, for anyone involved. Reuben Hatch was relieved of his duties as the chief quartermaster for the Department of Mississippi and deemed mentally unfit to be the quartermaster. Later, uh, after other dealings involving a large amount of missing government funds, he was discharged from the Army. Frederick Speed, who was in charge of the ex-prisoner transport, was found guilty of the negligent overcrowding of the Sultana, but the verdict was overturned due to the fact that he was off-site all day and didn't personally place any passengers on the steamer. In the end, no one was held responsible for the tragic and preventable loss of life. Like most events like this one, there were a few alternate theories floating around as to the cause of the explosion. In 1888, William Streeter from St. Louis claimed that his old business partner, Robert Loudon, confessed to sabotaging the Sultana by use of a coal torpedo, an explosive disguised as a piece of coal, while they were drinking in a saloon. Loudon had been a Confederate agent and saboteur who operated in and around St. Louis and had been responsible for the arson of the steamboat Ruth. However, Loudon's claim is controversial and most scholars support the official explanation. The location of the explosion from the top rear of the boilers and far away from the fireboxes, indicates that Loudon's claim of using a coal torpedo to sabotage the Sultana was nothing more than a boastful claim. Another claim was that a farmer was chopping wood on the riverside uh, for passing steamboats and had hollowed out a log, filled it with gunpowder, and placed it in a batch of furnace wood that was mistakenly loaded on the Sultana. However, this claim is negated by the fact that the Sultana was a coal-burning steamer, not a wood burner. To understand why such a horrible disaster like the Sultana story passed nearly unnoticed by most of the country, and why it has since faded into the background of American history, you'll need to look at the other events that were happening at the time in our country. First, the Civil War had ended just weeks before the Sultana's explosion. That was no small news. Also, just a few days before, President Lincoln was assassinated, so most media outlets were focused on stories of the assassination, the potential conspiracy, and the funeral. And lastly, the day before the disaster, as we mentioned earlier, John Wilkes Booth was killed by Union troops, and this would end up pushing stories of the Sultana to the back pages of their publications. The larger media publications were mostly on the eastern portion of the country, so as the Sultana disaster happened in the western portion of the country, as it was at the time, it was deemed more removed and less relevant to their reporting focus, especially considering that the boat was filled with enlisted men, not colonels or generals. Unfortunately, due to the lack of reporting presence on the Sultana disaster, it has largely been forgotten even in recent days. This goes back to the point we demonstrated in our last episode that what most people believe is the most deadly maritime disaster in U.S. history is the sinking of the Titanic. There are those, however, that did not forget this tragic event. A group of Sultana survivors from East Tennessee formed a survivor association, which met annually on April 27th for many years following the tragedy. On July 4th of 1916, they erected a Sultana monument at the Mount Olive Cemetery near Knoxville. On its sides are inscribed the names of 365 Tennesseans who were aboard the steamer. The face of the monument reads, A memory of the men who were on the Sultana that was destroyed April 27, 1865, by explosion on the Mississippi River near Memphis, Tennessee. 
Over the years, this group grew smaller and smaller until the Knoxville Journal reported on the meeting in 1930 on the 65th anniversary of the disaster. A stocky man with a white mustache and brown-gray hair, his shoulders stooped with cares of 84 years, will go today from his home in Knoxville to the Rockford Presbyterian Church and there elect himself to all the offices of the Sultana Survivors Association. Alone, he will attend what would have been a reunion had another one of his comrades lived. There will be speeches, and he will make them, dinner, and he will eat it. He will call a business session, answer the roll, close the meeting, and return to his home. He is the last survivor of the East Tennessee Federal soldiers who were saved when the Sultana sank near Memphis, with a death toll of 1328 on April 27, 1865, 65 years ago today. Pleasant Marion Keeble, the lone survivor, will observe the memory of his comrades today and keep the pledge he made with them a half a century ago. Then there will be more than 100 who met annually. 20 years ago there were 40, 10 years ago there were 11. In 1928, four were living. At the reunion last year, there were only two. Now there is only one. Luckily, this tragedy has not been forgotten by a group of people in Marion, Arkansas. In 2015, the Sultana Disaster Museum was opened at 104 Washington Street in Marion to help people learn about the largely forgotten event. The museum covers the steamer itself, from construction to destruction, as well as many of the victim, rescuer, witness, and survivor stories involved. The museum currently resides in a very small building, but they have recently acquired the historic Marion High School Gymnasium, along with $1 million in federal funding from the American Rescue Plan. They are going to use the funding to construct a modern museum in that gymnasium, and it looks really amazing. It does, yeah. The mock-ups can be seen on their website at sultanadisastermuseum.com. Also, speaking of their website, if you want to help, you can purchase a memorial brick at the new site in honor of one of the victims of the Sultana tragedy. Your donation will place a 4x8 or 8x8 brick to be placed in the Memorial Plaza outside the new museum with your custom message engraved. For your donation, you will receive a donor certificate showing your brick, as well as a miniature souvenir brick. Just look for Brick Campaign among the menu options on their website. We planned on going to the museum before this episode came out, but it wasn't in the cards, unfortunately. Soon, though, because in researching the story, it made us even more interested in it. So we'll update with pictures and additional info when we go. Yeah. So there you have it, the longest anticipated follow-up episode in the history of history podcasts. Yes. (laughs) If it's been a while since you've listened to the first half, go back and give it a listen. It really is an interesting and maddening story. Yes. We hope you enjoyed this final episode of our second season of Unearth Memphis. Yay. Yay. Uh, stay tuned for season three. A spoiler alert. It's all about the yellow fever epidemic of 1878. Woo-woo. Um, I don't know that that deserves a woo-woo. No, no. Yellow fever doesn't deserve a woo-woo. It does not. But it's going to be a great season. Let's try it again. Spoiler alert. It's all about the yellow fever epidemic of 1878. Aww. Aww. all right guys thanks for listening the story that we unearthed don't forget to listen to our next episode on your favorite podcast listening app and also if you get a chance we'd love for you to like and subscribe leave us a review share us on social media check out our website at unearthmemphis.com instagram at unearthmemphis facebook at facebook.com slash unearth901 twitter at unearth901 or drop us an email at unearthmemphis at gmail.com 
We love to hear from everybody. Questions, comments, suggestions, corrections, or just chatter is appreciated and enjoyed. Yes, it is. And here is our disclaimer. We are not historians. We are simply two people who are interested in Memphis history. We have done research and are trying to provide accurate history as best we can. There is a possibility that some of these statements are incorrect, but we have tried to verify all the info so that we are not putting out any untrue info. To the best of our knowledge, what we are saying is correct, but let us know if you have any things to add or correct. In the show notes, you'll find links to the articles we used, book titles, etc. to gather our information. Yay! I've missed doing this. This is yeah, so me fun. Too. Uh, so thanks again for listening, guys. Yeah, thanks. Yay, bye! bye. Unearthed Memphis is written, produced, and engineered by Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. The music was written, performed, and recorded by Donnie Wayne Smith and Alan Compton. 